This is A Word Fitly Spoken. My words about reading the scripture, about preaching the scripture, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here today with Zell and Heidi as always, and Reverend Adam Kuntz joining us to wrap up this discussion of Walther's pastoral theology. Gentlemen, how are you? Great. Fantastic. I have looted my children's Halloween candy a couple times already, so things Nicely are going done. well. 50% dad tax. Yes, sir. You know? Nicely yes, sir. Apologies to our libertarian and anarcho-capitalist you know, <laughs> listeners. I hope that joke wasn't <laughs> triggering. <laughs> but but hopefully, Adam, you were smart and went for the peanut butter and chocolate-based treats and left the Jolly Ranchers and other things for the for the young ones. Yeah, that's right. None of them will be the wiser, although they suspect that I, ste- <laughs> that I steal the most from the youngest, which is probably true. So, well, it's probably good. Don't yeah. want them- but when you have like a million yeah. kids, there's always some unwitting young child, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know with my own children, they came home from the Halloween party the other night just completely off their rocker. So it's probably a good thing to just kind of dial it back a little bit. <laughs> right, right. So we are recording this around Halloween. If you folks haven't picked up on that, uh, weather nice and mild wouldn't be word fitly without the report. You know, <laughs> it was freezing rain last Halloween, mid 60s today. Pretty good. Yeah, Pretty good. Yeah, very nice. Zelwyn, how much snow did you have to truck through to get to <laughs> your trick-or-treat parties? Snow pants over Halloween costumes <laughs> continue to be a continual meme. In, in North, North Dakota, Dakota, everybody dresses up as Mr. Plow for Halloween. <laughs> you know, the first time my wife is from Minnesota, the first time that she told me about snow pants on Halloween, I was just like, you know, like, what what world are you from? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> they moved a piece of Scandinavia up near the Canadian yeah, they really border. Did. Yeah. And, yeah. And then Garrison Keeler built a brand around right. it. Pretty shrewd, really. <laughs> Fairly well, cold right. here, but anyway. <laughs> All right. So, Walther on pastoral care. We talked last time about demonic possession and sick visits and everything. And we're we're vi- we're going back to this theme of caring for the physical well-being of members. And we have a few things we want to talk about, uh, specifically dying, you know, death and burial and funerals and that kind of thing. But there is another aspect of physical well-being, the physical well-being of the members that's, I'm not going to say neglected, but sometimes we forget to discuss. So moving on through Walther then, Adam, where would we where would we start then? Where are we picking this discussion up? Walther is very concerned about the state of the poor in the parish. And this relates also to how he thinks about being a church in a in a, in a country without a state church. This may trigger our libertarian listeners, or maybe they'll be all the happier to see how Walther adjudicates these issues. But he says that in a state church, the idea that the state would care for the poor within a parish is okay, he says, because the state and the church accept the same Christian responsibility. In a free church, he says, conversely, it is shameful that any Christians who are poor should be cared for by anyone other than the church. Yeah, so in, o- in other words, the church needs to be helping no matter what, 
if the state happens to be aiding the church in that endeavor, so much right. the better. Yeah, and it's not that state aid. Walter isn't saying that state aid is, is intrinsically evil. He's saying it's shameful for Christians not to care for their own brothers. That's right. Yeah. So the the idea is similar to you know when Paul discusses very clearly that if someone doesn't care for his own household, he has denied the faith. The question is what I believe our Catholic brethren would call the subsidiarity, where the 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 closest to the situation is the one who has primary responsibility. So a father has primary responsibility for a family, even if the parish or the state may have some interest in the family's well-being, the father has primary responsibility. So in the case of Christians who are poor, the state may have some interest in their not being poorly educated, being well-fed, not being sick constantly, not being absent from work. But the church, Walther says, has primary responsibility for caring for them because the church should exhibit care for its own poor above all things and not have to lean on the state for the state to do what Christ has already commanded the church to do. Walther, too, I mean, certainly sees this not really or not solely in the domain of the pastor. He also wants the laity involved in this. I believe he recommends deacons take up this work in the church. Yeah, and this is kind of an interesting point. And, and we're we're not getting into the giant topic of polity, which Walther raises in a single chapter within the pastoral theology, but it, obviously at much greater length than other works. That's really a discussion for someone else with much greater expertise than myself to talk about. But what's interesting is he does bring up deacons here, and he sees deacons as appointed primarily to care for the poor. Now, within that, there's a couple kinds of discernment that a deacon has to have. One is, what are those needs? And, and you know, you guys know as well as I do that some people are very forthcoming with their needs, and some people are extremely reticent about expressing their needs, even to the pastor, let alone to anyone else. So... The deacon or whoever is tasked with caring for the poor in the parish would have to have a lot of discernment to understand what people need. The other kind of discernment he needs is something similar to when Paul talks about, you know, only enroll those who are truly widows. So the, the deacon in Walther's scheme has to know basically who is lying, who is just sort of sucking off the charity of other Christians and Walther, Walther specifies that there are to be no able-bodied beggars, that if someone is receiving assistance from the parish, it is because that person cannot support himself. If he is at all able-bodied, he needs to be working because it's shameful for a Christian not to be working when he could. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Just to bounce off this idea of, of knowing, you know, knowing who really needs this, it ties back into the earlier podcasts about visitation and the pastor needing to regularly visit and question and act, or be a human being and actually talk with his members right. about everyday stuff. That's how one would know. Yeah, and then we come to, you know, this idea of of the Christian needing to to work. And I know that that's kind of, you know, we're in a bit of a culture of leisure, and yet at the same time we we live in a culture of workaholics. It, it seems like whichever side you want to be on is either – no leisure, you know, or guys that want too much leisure and blame the Protestant work ethic, you know, for this kind of attitude for some reason. But we we do live in a society that really overvalues professionalism, yet at the same time is not really shy 
about the Gibbs, you know, holding out a hand and, and asking for something. It's an interesting disparity that we have in American culture today. I think that one way that I really see this is in people being infrequent in attendance at divine service on Sundays. And that lack of attendance is often very class-based. Wealthier folks, if they're not attending, it's because they're paying hundreds of dollars for some kind of travel sports team and they're gone, right? They're off somewhere, you know, all weekend, a lacrosse tournament or a hockey tournament or whatever. With folks who have working class jobs, they are subject to schedules that white collar jobs are not subject to. And so if they're not in church, it's probably not by choice. It's because they're afraid that they'll get fired if they don't volunteer to do, you know, second shift over the weekend or whatever it is that they're being asked to do, or in some cases, mandatory overtime so that, you know, they can squeeze that much more productivity out of these workers. I think, I think that the pastor's awareness of the economic condition of the members, even if you're not talking about destitution and what do you do if somebody, you know, can't pay for heating oil or whatever it may be, even just knowing the economic condition of the various members of the parish is important because, people's reasons for doing the exact same thing, in this case, missing divine service on Sunday, may be totally different. And your approach has to be totally different on the basis of those economic disparities. Well, it's interesting, too. You know, you'll often hear the excuse that, well, we don't really need to focus too much on the poor within our own parishes because there are so many government programs now. Between WIC, food stamps, LIHEAP, I can't any other alphabet, you know, soup name that I can't think of right now. Not saying any of these programs is immoral or that there's necessarily shame in partaking of them. However, it probably has cut into, shall we say, the charitable spirit of many Christians. Yeah, Walther's presumption is that the church is a community that exists in and of itself and takes care of itself prior to any other engagement by its members with outside society. So what Walther is envisioning is something much more like what the Amish do today than anything that any mainstream church that I know of does, where within the Amish, they don't have health insurance, they're not in social security, they barely use outside investment vehicles, and that's mainly just to park their savings somewhere. But they have basically communally managed funds that fund everything from new home construction for newlyweds to health insurance. And all of this is like paid in cash, generally speaking. And they do that basically by putting collective well-being in front of individual well-being. So I think part of the big difference between Walther and us, everyone on this call, and the congregations we serve and the church that we're in, is a just a totally different outlook on what is my primary place of belonging in life. And for a lot of Americans, that's really just themselves. For a lot of American Christians, that's going to be their families. And they're very loyal to their congregations, but their congregations aren't making economic decisions or telling them when and how they can get married. And if you go back into the history, you know, if especially if you belong to an older church, you can probably find, you know, evidence of 
the pastor and the board of elders said that this person can't get this divorce. And so they didn't or something. I mean, it's, it's a totally different way of thinking about what it means to belong to a church. And Walter's just expressing that when he's saying, you know, the pastor needs to make sure that the poor are taken care of. We can't let the state do that. He's assuming that church always comes between a Christian and any other relationship that that Christian has. It's always low-hanging fruit to kind of make fun of our predecessors for things like being opposed to insurance. But this would be a real concrete example of what you're talking about, Adam, because why would you have insurance when you have the community to take care of whatever loss has happened? Yeah, and and I think that that was the practical argument against insurance was that if we let you get insurance, you won't need the church to help you anymore. And then the church won't help you, and it will be failing its duty to take care of you as a member of the body of Christ. I believe that was the practical argument made back back then. And you, you get uh, examples of that, like, wasn't it Walther lost a church building at one point? And, or maybe it was a little bit later, and they didn't have any insurance, but because the, the, the congregation came together, they were able to build it immediately without taking out any kind of debt to do so. Yeah, it's amazing what they were able to do before banks and parties involved, you know, got in, got in on this stuff. It's amazing to this day what a Christian community can do when they just live out their Christianity, a full Christianity, one that goes beyond the Mass each week or the Divine Service each week, but actually believes and practices what it says. I mean, it's it's really amazing. And you do see examples of this. It's not all doom and gloom as if all the churches in the world are somehow awful today because of government programs. There are great examples of Christians, you know, coming together and, and it's happening every day. We just don't see it, which is the way it probably should be doing their good in secret, you know, coming together and helping those people out who need them. That's probably a better, a good example, or excuse me, a good excuse for smaller churches. The administration's easier that way. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I want to be clear and, uh, you know, maybe we will lose listeners because of what I'm going to say in a second is that I, my own personal politics are, let's just say rather far from anarcho-capitalism, but Walther isn't really talking about any particular economic schema. He's, right. he's not saying taxation is theft or, you know, the top tax rate should be 100% or something at some specified income level. He's saying that the church is a primary unit of belonging economically, socially, theologically, ideologically, in a way that the state cannot be for a Christian. And the pastor needs to make sure that that is practiced in the life of the church, such that the Christian does not fall out of that primary connection for what he needs in life and who he is to the church that he has a close. I'm reminded of David Oppold, and he and I are never on the same show, so we may actually be the same person. The listeners (laughs) will have to figure that out. But David Oppold and another friend and I were at a conference once. It was it was actually in the Franken colonies in Michigan, and one of one of the old men of this congregation talked about how they they laid out the lots when they when they settled and they had they had lots it was act, it's actually laid out a lot like german towns in pennsylvania that the houses were all close together and then they had very deep lots long deep lots on which to farm and the reason they did that was so that they could all be close and he said we all wanted to be close to the church like physically close 
to the church. And they could do that by all having their houses right next to each other, right up against the road. That is a, a way of thinking about where you live and how you settle and what you want your house to look like that is all primarily based on where you go to church. And there are very few people who can even live that way, let alone want to, let alone do. But that is the way that Walther is thinking when he says what he says in this section on caring for the poor. So all I'm hearing is that you are an Amish pinko commie. That's really what I'm taking away from. Yeah, that. it's it's I think it's <laughs> I, hear, I hear helicopters in the distance. Well, yeah, I um, mean, yeah, and it's it is you know I mean, and I, I I think that the other question that you want to ask yourself is like metaphysical, which is are David Apple and I simply the same person? The question is going to have to remain open. I think <laughs> there's really no way of proving this. Yeah, exactly. Um, and- right. Until until we can actually get you both in the same room, and then it's just computer tricks. But <laughs> I think the two Norwegians that that we've interviewed are in fact the same person. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. My my multiple voices. Right. Yeah, you, you all look alike to me, Zelwyn. It's it's true. <laughs> well, maybe maybe a theological way of thinking about it, Adam, would be that for Walther, the spiritual body that we have in Christ is paramount. Because to be attached to any other body is to be attached to a body that will die. Right. So if we're going to be attached to the living Christ, we need to think of in terms of that body first and foremost before any other worldly connection. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. That'll preach. And, and treat it better than we do our own bodies. <laughs> Take care of it. <laughs> nurture it. You know, don't let it get so shabby. I think we're getting personal now, but anyway... <laughs> I read a lot of books. I'm just saying. Uh, (laughs) All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break here to Word Fitly Spoken. On the other side of the break, we're going to come back, talk about death and burial. You are listening to Word Fitly Spoken. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. And we're back. You are listening to Word Fitly. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz talking Walther, concluding Walther, and pastoral care. So we just talked about care for the poor and the needy within our own congregations. Now we come to one of the most often talked about, maybe most misunderstood, and for some, maybe the most difficult pastoral concern, and that is care for the dying. So what does Walther have to say about this, guys? He is very clear that Even if it seems unlikely that someone who is dying wants to listen to the gospel, 
the pastor should go if he knows about it. This links up with a point that we made when we were talking about sickness, which is that the pastor should go even without an invitation to the one whom he knows is in need. So the dying, Walter is not only talking about the dying within one's own parish, but any dying people whom the pastor may have an opportunity to minister to. And that that includes an idea that I think is pretty important. And I, Zawin could probably speak to this better because he knows this time period better than I do. But the idea of the literature on having a good death or about deathbed conversions, it's kind of a trope that is now mocked. And it's a sign for us of insincerity. I mean, we don't really hear very much about deathbed conversions. It's a sign of insincerity that, you know, at the at the last possible hour, you became a Christian. Walther wants the pastor not to despise that idea, but to, in hope, go to proclaim the gospel. So that that's kind of a separate issue from the notion of caring for those who are already professing Christians. But I wanted to get that in there to start with, because... Walther thinks of it as a very alive possibility that the pastor could be ministering to somebody who may not believe anything before the pastor gets there. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, even if, like you say, we tend to mock the idea, I think the the sentiment that Walther is expressing is genuine, because why would you give up any opportunity to proclaim the gospel? And I I think that's really what's driving him here is that if you have this last possible moment, maybe the repentance will be genuine. You don't know. We might think of it in terms of skepticism, but it's going to be something that, yeah, it's just, it's an opportunity that the Lord has given us maybe this one last time. It's also difficult to fathom because many Christians don't think very much about death today, let alone non-Christians. People are often shocked when even in late middle age, they encounter some kind of serious medical setback, and they're surprised that their body is decaying, you know. So in a, in, I mean, in a, in a culture where youth is supposed to be perpetual, it's hard to prepare people to die. But Walther is actually presuming a culture in which death is frequently present, and even non-Christians will take death seriously enough that somebody will call for a pastor, even if the dying man is not himself a Christian at the time. Well, that that raises a good point, too, that ministering to the dying is very often also ministering to the, the bereaved. The, the idea that uh, we're not just there to talk to the, the man or the woman who, who is going to die, but also those who are about to mourn their death and who feel trepidation uh, because of what is happening. So I could see it also as an opportunity, opportunity to reach families who might not otherwise be reached by the gospel. Yeah, I no question. And I, I think, too, that when you have any opportunity, like you said, you should seize upon it. A situation that I think often happens just because of the way that demographics work in many of our congregations is that you are ministering, especially if you're talking about an elderly person, you're ministering to a Christian. It's actually sort of the opposite of what I think Walther's presumed deathbed conversion situation is where there's Christians who call a pastor to a non-Christian. Often you're ministering to a Christian who has gone to church, you know, pretty much every Sunday of her life, but her children are maybe 
you know, they're, they're middle-aged and they don't go to church as frequently. And the grandchildren, you know, maybe were confirmed, but really don't go to church anymore. So, I mean, sometimes the deathbed conversion is not really today the conversion of the dying person. It's the potential conversion of the people who are around the deathbed or who are at the funeral, which is why, you know, when we talk about funerals in the next segment, we're going to have to talk about evangelism because the opportunity is really there. I mean, you still have the potential in our society for non-Christians to gather around the proclamation of Christ in connection with death, whether it's in the home or the hospital bed, or whether it's in church for the funeral. But that's really something that Walter doesn't envision as much because he's presuming a vastly predominantly Christian society in which you have sort of outlying village atheists or non-attenders who are sort of aberrant socially in that way, but may be converted on their deathbeds. Well, let's talk about visiting the Christian on their deathbed. What does that look like for you gentlemen? You go, somebody's say in hospice. What are you seeking to bring to those people? What what does your time there look like? Are we talking about those who are still coherent? Or are yeah, we talking about yeah, those who are incoherent? Let's say still pretty lucid. Okay. I know my own experience with those who are still pretty lucid has been to First of all, to just go when you hear of it, like Walter says, and also to bring a clear word of scripture, actually lots of words of scripture, talking about the certainty of the resurrection, talking about how Jesus has died for them, just being very, very explicit about what it means to be a redeemed child of God and the hope that we have in the resurrection on the last day. And also lots of prayer and just really, again, just being there above all is a tremendous blessing in itself. Because sometimes uh, these these poor people, all they might have around them might be their immediate children. Yeah, or some, you know. Yeah, or, you know, a sketchy chaplain from somewhere too. Sure. You know, not to come down on chaplains, but they're not the shepherd of these people. Right. And it's important to guard your flock. Adam, would you say it's similar for you as well? Yeah, very similar. And And I would also say that the rite of the commendation of the dying is, this sounds kind of odd, but it's, it's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. It's rather long. It's rather involved. There's a lot of readings. There's a rather complete passion reading from John's gospel. And as you do all of that and you go through it, there's a litany. And at the very end, there is some of the verses from Lord, let at last thine angels come, which contrary to my own personal habits, I usually sing at, you know, warning the family beforehand. I usually, I usually <laughs> sing that and, and, and people appreciate that. And then we, I often end up incorporating that hymn into funerals. And, and the reason for that is that in the commendation of the dying, the pastor has one of the clearest instances of what his vocation is, which is to guide God's sheep into the Savior's arms and then to keep them there. And you also have one of the clearest pictures of what it means to be a Christian, which is to unite your life's story and sufferings and vicissitudes to the story of the suffering of our Lord. So that the Passion account is an account, you know, both of Jesus who who suffered once for all and of the Christian who is there on the deathbed suffering 
but through baptism that Christian has been united with that Christ. And so the story is finally one of victory. And in the right that, that we use in connection with the, with, the, with the current service book, the last reading in the section of readings, Accommodation of the Dying, is about God wiping away every tear from their eyes from Revelation. So it's just, it's just an extremely beautiful and, and focused thing to do in connection with the dying. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's never obviously happy necessarily to be called to a deathbed, but there's a beautiful clarity about the necessity of Christ when you are there. And I think everyone in the room senses that. And it's, it is a beautiful rite. And it's one that you'll find yourself sometimes doing more than once before the same person. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing when you, when, and I don't know if you've, I've, I've had this happen more, more than once, you know, you, you're called in because it's the final moments and that final moment actually turns into a few days. So, you know, you, you actually might end up repeating this, but it's not, it's not a bad thing at all because it is so filled with scripture and so filled with these, these promises of the gospel. You know, it's death is a mystery insofar as the time of death that is up to the Lord. And this is one of the reasons that the pastor is, or one of the reasons why the pastor is on call 24 hours a day. And you don't know how long you're going to be there with the family. That's probably why a, a good, a well-memorized Bible is your friend in this case. I'd give you an answer to talk about things. If it's a faithful family, even if it is a faithful family, you're probably going to be asked some difficult questions at times. This is where faith and the realities of eternity you know, become real for most people. Because it's like you said earlier, we, we put death out of our minds. We don't want to think about it. It's something that's far off. But oftentimes death comes when you least expect it. Death doesn't knock. Death just shows up with his own key. So you have to be ready. And as a pastor, you're dealing with people sometimes who are in in shock. So we talk about like hospice patients or something like that, you know, people that we know that's coming. What do you do then with a rather sudden, say, a, a grievous injury? that they know, you know, they're going to have to pull the plug or they're going to withdraw life support or something like that. Does it look any different? Are you going to approach the family different when it comes about suddenly? Or is your approach generally the same? I, I think it looks very different unless you have the time. But let's say let's say you even have the time and you do the same right. You do commendation of the dying or whatever your practice is. There's a reason that the, the common litany prays to be kept from sudden and evil death. Because there is a certain spiritual and emotional shock about sudden death, and you can you can apply the same idea to premature death, death that is unexpected, the death of the young, things like that. There's really a whole separate set of questions and frustrations and types of anger that arise in people in connection with sudden or premature deaths that do not occur when an 85-year-old dies with his family around him. The 85-year-old may not be suffering any less or for any you know, fewer number of days than someone who's 30 who dies. But there is something just utterly different about the, the death of the 30-year-old or someone who dies in a car crash when he's 10. And so pastorally, you've got just a whole separate set of ideas, emotions, things to work through, answers to know whether you can give an answer or whether you need to just say you don't know. 
it, it's all totally different depending on the manner of death. That's just something that you kind of feel out by knowing the circumstances. Yeah, you know, this is certainly one of the aspects of the pastoral ministry that doesn't make it on the seminary recruitment brochures. <laughs> would you have any advice, you know, in view of, of this context, would you have any advice to men who are discerning whether they should go to the seminary or not when it comes to this type of pastoral care? If I if I would just say to them, I would say it is the highest honor and the highest privilege that a pastor can have to be there in the final moments of someone's life, to bring them Jesus Christ. And so if there's any trepidation about what it is that you are called there to do, you need to take you need to think pretty hard about what you want to do. Because this is really, you know, the moment that God is calling you towards. On the other hand, those difficult moments, like how are you going to deal with it emotionally? How are you going to deal with it when the hard questions come? Is something that can only really be done by being prepared in the word and also just being unafraid to proclaim the gospel. It won't be easy all the time, and you might find yourself grieving just as much as the family. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Yeah, I, I, I think there are aspects about being a pastor which are very flattering to one's ego if one succeeds at them. Like when a whole room of people has to listen to you and be quiet and listen to what you want to say and stuff like that. But I think that it's at the time of death, and especially in life situations or situations of death, for which you do not have answers, that are in many ways the most fruitful for understanding what it is that you're actually doing as a pastor, whether it's in the pulpit or at a deathbed. And the thing that's absolutely requisite in both places is utter humility about what it is that you are there for. Because the illusion that you can get if you only think about the pulpit or the classroom is that you are there to provide answers, to be a comprehensively capable human being. You lead an organization, giving is up, attendance is up, your ego is up. Whereas when you're at the deathbed, especially if it's sudden or evil death, unexpected, there's a lot of grief, you are under no illusion that you have really hardly any answers. You're there to proclaim Christ as Savior, as Resurrector, as Lord. And that's really all you can do. You're, you're really not that special. Lots of other people have said the same thing. You're not especially interesting. People are not listening to you. The whole room doesn't have to shut up when you're talking. And, and you don't really know a whole lot because you just know Jesus. So that's really all you have to give people. And I think that that kind of humility is fruitful for everything about being a pastor, not just when people are dying, but you really have to think about your ministry in terms of what would I say if somebody were dying? Because that really narrows down who you are, what you need to be talking about, what you really need to worry about. Lots of things will become much clearer in the face of death. One of the uh, most humbling moments for me in the face of death, just speaking from personal experience, is dealing with those who are no longer lucid and trying to bring a, a clear word when you don't even know if you're being heard or not. And the reason and I can think of like the last dear saint that I had a funeral for, by the time I got to her, she was completely lucid. I mean, she was in and out. I think she might have even been starting to do the death rattles. I mean, everything. It was it was obvious that it was going to be a matter of hours rather than days. And to be there alone, because I came during a time when the family wasn't there, with her as she dies, and to bring her a clear word of God was immensely humbling. 
because then all of your pomp, all of your circumstance, all of your self-importance just goes right out the window, like you say, Adam. And you realize that you really are a dying man speaking to dying men. Any last words about before we go to break about ministering to the dying? It truly is one of the simplest things in its own way. There's not a lot of complicated things that you need to say or that you really can say because you're speaking about something which is a great mystery in the twinkling of an eye. We shall all be changed, you know, so that what what is now here, the things that people are now seeing and suffering from and obsessing about those things will just be gone. So in a way, it's simple, but that simplicity is at the heart of what it is that we do and what it is that the church proclaims, which is that Christ is Lord even over those circumstances and that he shall change our our mortal bodies to be like his glorious body. So those simple things are really the heart of the gospel, and, and it really is the pastor's privilege to to say those things to the dying. Very good. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Ellen Heidi, Adam Kuntz, finishing up our discussion on Walter's pastoral theology. So we've talked about ministering to the dying, what that looks like, and then comes the next part, funerals. Now, this is a very touchy subject for many, many people, and for obvious reasons. Walter has his own views, you know, many historic views, but some of these can make people today uncomfortable, especially with the professionalized and catered funeral industry that we deal with. So you got to understand Walter is coming at this from a very different time and a time when the church really had full and exclusive say over funerals and people by and large respected that. And that's as close as word fitly spoken will ever come to giving a trigger warning. But just know <laughs> that this is a touchy subject for a lot of people, and Walter might rustle some jimmies every now and then. So, without further ado, let's talk about Walter and burial and funerals. Yeah, and let's just get into a touchy subject to start with. In Walter's own time, in fact, the first two of them were in the state of Pennsylvania. Commonwealth, yes. Yeah, yeah. Crematoria began to be built and used And in the 19th century, being cremated was, as it had been in the ancient world when Christianity first arose, was a witness of disbelief in the resurrection. 
It was an attempt, I mean, however foolish, to frustrate God's capacity to resurrect the body to eternal blessedness or eternal judgment. And so cremation was in the ancient world and in Walther's time, a mark of unbelief. Therefore, Walther says rather offhandedly and and pretty quickly that cremation should not be done. No bodies should be burned, he says, as the pagans have done. Right. And it's interesting because it's still relatively uncommon in the Americas at that time. But like you say, from the more industrialized areas, you know, it's, it's already present in the 1800s. And then it slowly trickles out west. It probably actually moves, you know, into the center too, because I'm imagining it's probably happening, let's say, the western United States more because of a couple of different cultures that are present there. But the big industrialized crematoriums, you know, you said he first encountered them in Pennsylvania? Yeah, the first one is in Washington, PA, in the western part of the state. And the second one is where I am, in Lancaster, PA. Hmm. You know, I don't have any hard statistics on burials versus cremation today, but certainly cremation is becoming more and more common. It's really a regular occurrence. You know, it doesn't it doesn't surprise people anymore. I think what does surprise people is the historic Christian position on cremation. It's not saying and, and people we need to get this clear. It's not saying that if someone is cremated that they cannot be resurrected. You know, that 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 old straw man there. It's talking about the sanctity of the body and honoring that. If you look at the Old Testament specifically, the bodies of God's people are treated very reverently, even the bones. Right. And I think that's that's informative for us as Christians. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of Christians, especially in America, have a very minimalistic way of thinking about ethical issues, where if something is not explicitly forbidden they really can't see their way to disagreeing with surrounding culture in their own time and place, even if Christianity throughout the ages has been against something. So in the, in the case of cremation, for instance, it's not that yeah, it's not that you can somehow frustrate God's will to resurrect or something like that. And it's very understandable, especially where poverty is a real issue in connection with death, that somebody would choose the much cheaper option rather than, you know, embalming with, you know, a vault being built at the grave and all this kind of thing. I mean, it's very expensive to die these days. And there are other options and we don't have to go into all that right now. But the the most basic issue is that the Christian is witnessing in life and in death that his body and everything he is and has is a gift of God and is therefore treated as a gift and not lightly disposed of or burned because it's God's creation and the Holy Spirit dwells in that body and has sanctified that body, which is what the burial rite itself witnesses to when the pastor pronounces the final blessing upon the body to be lowered into the grave, that the Son of God has by his blood redeemed this body so that the body itself is a gift of God and therefore should be buried with reverence. All right. Next, we move on to cemeteries themselves. How does Walter view the cemetery? He sees it as pretty much essential. You see this especially with older churches that the cemetery is presumed. Um, For instance, when a lot of our cities were laid out, there was no place allotted for cemeteries because people founding those cities, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, 
just presumed that churches would all have cemeteries. So that's where people would be buried. There would be some sort of waste ground available to bury somebody who was a stranger or for some unknown reason did not belong to some particular congregation. The notion that the cemetery would ever be separate or that the dead would ever be physically distant from the church really doesn't enter into a lot of people's minds. And Walther, in, you know, interestingly, I mean, he's writing this long after the Northwest Ordinance and in a largely Midwestern church body where public cemeteries are widely available. But he just assumes that if the pastor gets to a congregation and they don't have a cemetery, the pastor will start a cemetery in order to reverently bury the dead in consecrated ground. So Walther sees them as seemingly essential. Almost impossible to do today in new church construction, though. There's regulation, there's just the cost of land, the availability of land. That's not to say a church shouldn't keep and maintain their cemeteries. It's just people were a lot more understanding in those days, and they expected that to be part of the church grounds. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's also just not in people's minds because death is presumed to be kind of a private family affair. And this goes back to our discussion about what is your primary way of thinking about, you know, the most important collective unit in your life. And even for a lot of Christians, it's not the church. So they want to be buried in a family plot in some kind of municipal cemetery or private cemetery or something. They don't think like, I need to be laid to rest right next to the church. Not many of them anyway, you know, not, not all of them. What about a decent and honorable burial? In Walther's words. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and that that maybe that phrase sounds weird to the listeners, but that's he's he's got this complicated classification of different kinds of burial based on the pastor's judgment of the circumstances of the person's death. Depending on those circumstances, the burial will be with more or less ceremony, more or fewer attendance. Decent and honorable is, an, in, is kind of a technical term for Walther. And that means a burial out of the church in the daylight with a choir, with the pastor, with the church bells tolling. So that's decent and honorable. Decent meaning sort of proper, seemly, fitting, honorable, you know, with full honors. We would say, we, we still use phrases like this when we talk about veterans and we say buried with full military honors, right? Which is actually based on things like your service and your discharge status. That's why people try to get their discharge status changed in the military because certain benefits accrue to you if you were honorably discharged. Similarly, to be honorably discharged by the church is basically for the church to say you died as a professing Christian. If that is the case, then you're buried from the church in broad daylight with full honors. In that category, Walther also includes children who die before baptism. And he this presumably means Christian children. And he quotes the Saxon church order of 1580, which would be a church order pertinent to the part of Germany that he's from originally, Saxony. And the quote there will be, I I think, interesting to a lot of listeners, not doubting the salvation of such children who have died before the chance of being baptized, because, quote, they are commended to God in this way through believing prayer. So that is is how Walther handles Christian children who die before baptism. So their, their parents are Christians, 
baptism was the goal, but they either died either very early after birth or were miscarried. Zolan's being very quiet. I'm a, he's just over here thinking, we got to wait until the spring before we can bury anyone. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Willie injecting some levity into this, yes. We got to. We got to break that tension. Pudding's getting his skin on it, you know? <laughs> I, I think it's it's interesting to talk about this this kind of distinction between burials, if only because it is an interesting historical perspective. Mm-hmm. But it it can also inform us a little bit about the way we approach funerals, even if we don't have a full, fourfold distinction like Walther seems to have. We should at least be thinking about what it is that Christians are doing or people are doing, and not just to accept everyone indiscriminately. I mean, I don't know how you want to... Or just give in to any demands. I mean, that see, that's right. the, the thing that we really, and I alluded to this in the intro... The funeral industry is a good service, but it is a business, and everything is becoming so tailor made, so customized. Right. You know, every bell and whistle, every package. And so then the funeral ultimately becomes not a church function, which is a which should primarily be about proclaiming the resurrection of the flesh. It becomes almost like another party. And there's there, there's kind of a romanticized view to to a funeral that we have, and you hear that a lot. Well, I want mine to be a party, and I want the. It's like okay, we put the fun in funeral. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like guys, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to grieve. Okay, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. But the Christians' committal service is about the hope of the resurrection in Christ Jesus. And right. I don't know that if, that if we don't get that point across at some point, and especially at the graveside, then we've really missed the whole boat. I mean, you, you do want to allude to the person and talk about that person because they were a human and they were one for whom Christ died. And they're a right. dear and precious saint. Now, what does that mean then? That they will be raised up again and given that new and glorified body. And if we forget that, and if we get bogged down in all this, you know, we can we can just forget. We're almost becoming like the Egyptians. We're Pharaoh again, and we're mummifying cats and throwing them in caskets and burying them with people, or or being buried with motorcycles and all this kind of thing. It's it's got to stop at some point. You know, it, it's almost another manifestation of us not wanting to look at death. So we're clinging to these things from this world, even after we've departed it. And I understand why people do it, and it is and it is comforting for them to see a loved one like that, or to or to talk about those things. But again, that's not what the Christian funeral is about. And I think that a lot of what we what some would see as hard stances that Walther makes, ultimately they're about preserving the integrity of the church and of that witness. He's not a big fan of of lying, you know, right at the end. Well, and maybe maybe we should at least let Adam cover the the rest of the the categories first before we talk about the funeral sermon. So this final category we get is an is burial for heretics or non-Christians. Dishonorable but human as he puts it. Yeah, he has he has an intermediate category of decent but dishonorable which would include what you might call ambiguous cases of people who profess to be Christians but had some sort of mitigating circumstance. Maybe they, yeah, he, he's got all kinds of categories. And if we went into any one of them, we would be here a lot longer than we plan to be here. But he, 
those folks could be buried during the day, but without full accompaniment, maybe just a pastor. The decent but are the the dishonorable but human burial is at night and is in some measure accompanied. But when Walther talks about that, he really doesn't mention pastors. It's just sort of a category. And because Walther is getting this out of pastoral theologies, all written under state church situations, it's hard for me not to think that that, you know, merely human burial is really just about the government needing to figure out something to do with dead bodies in in the way that you have anywhere in pre-modern cities where you have potter's fields, or I, I know in Philadelphia, it was called the stranger's ground, because if they didn't know who you were, that's where they put you if you died in the city. So th- that's the decent but human. And then the fourth category, he draws out of Jeremiah 22. That's another sort of just it's almost a technical term. And that is what the tradition calls an ass's burial, which is which means that you are just sort of left there like a dead animal. And so in those last two cases, Walther isn't really talking about something that a pastor personally needs to do. The pastor is really judging between should this person have the full accompaniment and support of the church or not. But the pastor does not have responsibility personally for burying heretics or someone who is a notorious, unrepentant criminal or something. Those are are examples that Walther provides. He's saying, though, that the manner of burial and the honor or dishonor accorded to a body is a measure of what that body has been up to before it died. Yeah, which is something that, you know, doesn't sit well to modern ears. Well, I mean, just making well, distinctions at all yeah. doesn't sit well. Yeah, it, not, not just in funerals, but in, in any just, sphere. Right, at of all. Life. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right. So that brings us to our last point for this podcast is what about the funeral sermon? Yeah, and the funeral sermon, you're... <laughs> Walther, Walther is basically warning against pastors doing funerals that they really shouldn't do for theological reasons, but for financial reasons, they do them in order to make extra money because pastors almost universally in Christianity have always received what are often called in in Lutheran pastoral theologies, stole fees, things accruing to you for particular acts because you wear a stole, because you are a pastor. And funerals would be one of those things you get paid something extra, generally speaking. And you shouldn't you shouldn't do the funeral and stand up there and lie about what a great Christian so and so was when everyone, including you, knows differently. So Walther is very against a funeral sermon, which would, so to speak, preach a sinner out of hell and into heaven as the pastor is talking. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. so there you go, you know. And you typically get paid after after the sermon. So Right. So you need you know, there. right. So if it's at all up in the air and you're, you know, trying to be a pleaser of men by what you're saying, you know, you're you're already in a bad way. But this is actually good news because now the fees are often taken care of by the funeral home and billed as part of the package. So there you go. <laughs> You know, unless you're working for tips, it's nothing really to worry about right now. Uh, I don't know. I think you could still be pretty concerned about your money and what you're going to make on something rather than concerned about what you should be saying. Yeah. I think it's still possible. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely still possible. <laughs> well, the sarcasm doesn't quite come across clear. But yes. yes. I mean, I, I think that the one opportunity with a funeral sermon 
is really for evangelism. I mean, tomorrow I will I will do a funeral and I know that there will be non-Christians there. So there is a wonderful opportunity in the funeral sermon to tell the truth about sinners and to tell the truth about Christ. So that that's that that's a way in which the funeral sermon is a really joyous occasion for the pastor to share the gospel with people who some of whom wouldn't even be in church on Christmas Eve let alone any other time. So there is a great opportunity when you're preaching a funeral sermon to share the gospel very, very richly. The funeral sermons almost always involve texts that are very easy to preach that kind of comfort from anyway. Yep. You know, so you're preaching from things like, you know, First Thessalonians 4 or 5, you know, or things like just uh, talking about the resurrection in general. It can be very easy to talk about sin and the the the, the fruits of sin when you have the very fruit of sin laying, you know, in the the coffin before you. So I I find them to be very easy. I I find them to be the kinds of sermons that, like you say, it's very easy to be evangelistic. Yeah, I'm doing doing John 3.16 tomorrow. So there you go. Hey, they're beautiful. Rare text. This is something that people often get confused about, the funeral sermons. I think that a lot of people want to conflate the funeral sermon with a eulogy. Yeah, right. right. Not the same thing. And and actually, it's typical in our churches not to have eulogies within the service. Usually for that reason, had to avoid any kind of confusion there. I don't know, nor do I really care what your two practices are, but... <laughs> where Where people want to do a eulogy, which is not universal with the funerals that I do, I always ask them to put it somewhere outside the service. So whether that's, you know, I mean, it, it's okay with me if they talk at the front of the church before the service starts or at the, the lunch, yeah, at the yeah. luncheon or something like that. Even what I've saw work really well is after the visitation is over, but like say the, the like night before visitation mm-hmm. to have a small service at the, at the funeral parlor or the church, wherever it's at, and then allow that, that kind of thing. But it's not part of the actual funeral service. Right. Right. And again, it is good. There's no sin in remembering your loved ones, especially ones that are, you know, that memory is, is so fresh. And so we don't want to intimate that at all. So any last words on funerals, death, that all that fun stuff? <laughs> Put the last word on the uh, last nail on the coffin, so to speak. There we go. Yeah. I mean, not, not, not particularly. I think, I think that this section is evidence of something that we see throughout Walther's pastoral theology, which is his utter fidelity to the Lutheran Orthodox tradition that he has inherited and and quotes at great length. And that what you see behind a lot of those rationales, whether they are personally Walther's or whether they are things he's repeating and then carrying out in his own practice, is that the ultimate goal of all of it, even where it seems stringent, is to preserve the church as a community which uniquely confesses Christ and uniquely lives as the body of Christ. And that part of the the vigor of the early Missouri Synod, Walther's Missouri Synod, is its own comfort with being unique and with adhering to practices which you know, were sort of odd for America from the start, but which succeeded in forming a very cohesive Missouri Synod identity, which I think stood the Synod in good stead throughout a long period of time. 
because when people know why they belong to a group, the group tends to do a lot better just generally sociologically than a group that is much more diffuse, which is something that you see with a lot of the other Lutheran synods, which had a, maybe a weaker sense of belonging. So a lot of what Walther is saying and repeating and, and also teaching and publishing is designed to create on the, both on the local level and on the synod level, a sense of intense cohesion and commitment that is not often found in our individualistic society. Very good. Well, Adam, thanks for joining us You know, on this walkthrough of Walther's pastoral theology. Yeah, You've done- it's been my pleasure. We'll have you back on soon. You're a Cliff or a Norm at this point. Couldn't do it without you. Thanks again. So, hey, if you guys want to learn more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. Take a dive into our Facebook discussion group, Wordfitly Posting. That's Wordfitly Posting with a P. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless.